Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles scattered. Uh, actually, they're not scattered this morning. They're, they're at each aisle, at the very end, under the last chair on each aisle. So if you don't have one, uh, flag somebody down sitting at the end. They'd be happy to pass one over to you. Uh, and if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love it if you would take that one. That would just be our gift to you, and we'd love to talk to you uh, about anything you read there. Hebrews chapter 7 is where we're going to be. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, then it, I'm just going to call it what it is. It has been tough sledding, hasn't it, through Hebrews chapter 7? It is, it is without doubt the most challenging section of this letter and one of the most, I think, challenging sections of the New Testament. It's been challenging because we've been asked to think carefully about really old and obscure Old Testament history. We've been asked to think carefully about legal systems and Levitical priesthoods and all of these regulations that just don't make sense. To, or we, just, we just don't connect with them. They don't resonate with us anymore. And what we've been asked to do is to, to pay attention to those details because there would be a payoff at the end, even though we've had to sort of promise that that payoff is coming and keep pushing ourselves off, or pushing, pushing it back until we actually got to it. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know what I'm talking about. These, these chapters, this chapter has been tough. So tough, in fact, that the author of this letter started in on his subject that he was going to talk about in chapter 7, way back in chapter 5, and then he breaks it off and he says, you know what, you guys aren't ready to hear it yet. You have grown dull of hearing, he said, like you, the ears that are just stopped up, you're just not ready. And so then he takes this chapter and a half tirade, tirade is a strong word, he's very gentle and humble about it, but chapter and a half sort of venting almost, or challenge, direct challenge to them to, to get ready to hear these things because they aren't ready. They don't have the, the attention span for it, and they need to hear it because they're not going to connect with why Jesus is the only hope for them unless they're able to follow these really obscure details from the Old Testament. That was basically what he said. So we dove in, chapter 7, and we've been hanging on. And we've, we've read a lot about Melchizedek, about Abraham, about the Levites, about priesthoods that you are born into versus ones that you are called into about death and the fact that it sucks in even the priests who were set apart to deal with the problem of sin. That's where we've been. Today we actually do get to the payoff. Today we get to the end of the chapter, what, what the whole argument in all of its nitty-gritty detail has been building to. Today we get to this word in chapter 20, or verse 25, consequently. Because all of this stuff is true, even the stuff about Melchizedek and all the Levites and their priesthood, because that stuff is true, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, and forever all who draw near to God through him. Why is that true? That's what we want to ask today. Why is it that Jesus being a permanent priest, unlike any priest that has ever gone before, is what secures our hope before God. Why is a permanent priest, whether he's been arguing about this whole time with all those details I've mentioned, why is that good news? That's what I want us to answer. The short answer is that, that, that permanence, the permanence of Jesus' priesthood for us is deeply connected to perfection. 
Where there is permanence, there is also perfection. In other words, where there is a permanent priest, there is a perfect, complete solution to the problem of sin. And he's able to save us perfectly. Verse 25 I mentioned already is, is the, the hallmark verse of this chapter. And I want to camp there. It says that Jesus is now able to save completely all who come to God through him because the reason that he's able to do that is that he lives, lives forever to intercede for us. I want to I I really camp on that and try to figure out what it is about his intercession that makes us secure. Especially what it is about the fact that he is never going to stop interceding for us that makes us secure. I want to I say three things this morning. Based in this text and pulling from earlier in the chapter that this text is sort of the conclusion for, I want to say three things. A permanent priest... This is why a permanent priest is good news. A permanent priest perfectly erases our guilt. A permanent priest perfectly overcomes our inadequacy. And a permanent priest perfectly supplements our prayers. Those are our three points this morning. Now, if you found our passage, Hebrews chapter 7, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it? We're going to read together from... Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 23, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. Our first two verses that we looked at this, this morning that I just read, I kind of see them as, as a, basically a summary of what he said so far about the priests about Jesus and how he relates to the priest that came before him. Really, the biggest, the biggest symptom of, their, of a big problem that these former priests had is that they kept dying. They were, they were embedded in the same problem that they were meant to solve. They had no way of getting out from this cycle that traps all of us, a cycle that our sin is directly responsible for. And the big contrast between these former priests and Jesus is that he isn't going to die. He died once, but never will die again. There's something in that truth, in the, in the distinction between the, the transience of everything that came before and the permanence of Jesus that gives us hope for our salvation. And we want to we try to pry in there. The first point, I think this is the dominant point in, in this whole section we're looking at together, is that a perfect priest, a permanent priest... That's a priest 
who has perfectly handled our guilt. Here's what I mean by that. We've been saying all along that, that one, of the, one of the struggles we have in connecting with this passage, this, this larger passage in Hebrews, is that we just don't understand priests. We don't have any of them. We don't tend to rely on them. Um, we don't really understand how they were used in, in former times and don't really have any desire to go back to the way they were used then. The priests just aren't this category that we care much about. What we tried to do to, to help ourselves connect with that is to say it's basically a system that was put in place because our relationship was broken, that we were made for a relationship with God that has been broken deeply, and that at the heart of all of our problems, including our fears, including depression, including the way we treat each other when we know we shouldn't, the anger that we feel and the, the, the jealousy and the selfishness, that all of those are symptoms of a relationship that touches everything in our lives and that is deeply and fundamentally broken. And priests were put in place to try to heal that relationship, to be a bridge between two parties who are set at odds with each other, between all of us as sinners and God. Another thing we said is that, that for this relationship to be healed, the problem that broke it apart has got to be named. Every, any counselor worth their salt would tell you that if there has been a serious unfaithfulness in a relationship, that there's no true healing of that relationship that doesn't name it, address it, and move through it and beyond it. If you just try to pretend like it didn't happen, then the relationship is not going to be healthy. I mean, to take an extreme example... A, a, a marriage that has been broken by infidelity on the, on, the, on the part of one partner could never be healed if that infidelity is not addressed, if the fact that, that this partner has been cheated on is not addressed and confronted openly. The Bible pictures our relationship with God like a marriage, and our, cho- our decision to go our own way as a kind of infidelity to Him. And there is no healing that can happen in, that, in our relationship with Him that doesn't name it and then deal with it. Ultimately, in other words, there's no healing in our relationship with God that doesn't address the problem of guilt, that something has gone wrong and and we're responsible for it. And until that something is wiped clean, there can be no healing in our relationship. The priesthood is about guilt in part and dealing with it. That's why the priests offered sacrifices. The sacrifice was not just some random, arbitrary, primitive thing. It was showing that by giving over this thing that has value, you know, this, this animal or this portion of our crop, we are showing that we know our sin against God has value, that it was not okay that, we did, that we've done what we've done. The sacrifices were a pointer to guilt. But one, one thing we've noticed all through this chapter is that those sacrifices were not enough to remove the guilt. They had to be made over and over again. Every year, even, even the most important one, known as the Day of Atonement, had to be made every single year. And it's just like an annual reminder that things are not okay. And on top of that, on top of the fact that these sacrifices were made over and over again, the priests who were responsible for making those sacrifices kept dying And death, in the framework of the Bible, is just the final sign of our guilt. And that guilt has not been taken care of. So, 
if what we need is a healed relationship with God that will transcend death, if what we need, to use language from earlier in Hebrews, is someone to liberate us from the power of death, then the priest system that was in place before Jesus came was clearly not getting the job done. The priests themselves were guilty. The priests themselves deserved death. But now we're told that Jesus is a priest forever. That he lives. That he lives always. What does that mean? How is that even possible? The burden of chapter 7, especially of the verses right after our key verse, verse 25, is to explain that Jesus can be a priest forever. He has the right to serve forever because Jesus is the one person who has walked this earth free from all sin. And not only that, not only, verse 26 says, was he holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Not only, in other words, was he the only person who ever lived who did not deserve to die. He did die. He gave himself, not some lamb, not some portion of a crop, but his own perfect, innocent, holy, and unstained life. He gave that life as a sacrifice for those whose guilt was too great to eradicate on their own. That's the message of verse 26 and 27. Whereas the former priests had to give their sacrifices not only for their people but also for themselves and had to offer them all the time, just constantly, Jesus gave himself freely once for all. And now, because of that sacrifice, he lives forever. Now here's what I've been driving to. Let me just boil it down. If Jesus is alive forever, then what that shows is that the, the guilt that made this whole system necessary has been permanently and perfectly erased. Otherwise, Jesus would still be in the grave. The fact that he lives shows that his death was perfect and that our guilt is completely erased. I fear that we don't live as if that's true. I, I, know, I know my own heart, and I know you guys well enough to know that there are lots of us in this room that carry around a good bit of guilt, right? Sometimes it's low grade. Sometimes we're able to, to push it back. But I know some of you are carrying around guilt even that, about things that I don't know about that maybe nobody knows about. Maybe that, maybe that makes you sick to your stomach at the thought of someone else knowing about it. You realize that when you impose that guilt on yourself, what you're saying, really, is that Jesus' sacrifice was not good enough to wipe that clean? What you're saying, if you won't let go of the guilt that you're carrying around, is that you really don't have a permanent priest after all. Because if Jesus is who Hebrews 7 claims he is, if he lives forever even though he was once dead, then that is proof that he has once and for all perfectly handled the problem of your guilt. And there is nothing standing between you and healing in your relationship with the one who matters most other than your unwillingness to give that up. The call of this passage for you to trust in what Jesus has done. 
he was enough. And his life, his indestructible, once and for all, life is proof of that. So let it go. And trust in your permanent priest. I think that's the main point of our passage this morning. That's what he's been building to from, he, from the beginning of the chapter. And that's what, after that key verse in verse 25, that's what he goes right back to in verses 26 and 27. Jesus was perfect, and he gave himself up. And because he was perfect, when he gave himself up, that sacrifice was enough once and for all. So trust in him. But I think there's more here. A permanent priest is one who perfectly overcomes our inadequacy. Here's what I mean by that. Really, what we've been saying so far is that Jesus, as a permanent priest, perfectly gets rid of what we have done that we shouldn't have, right? That's guilt. He wipes clean what we've done wrong. But there's another side to what he does as our, as our priest in, in healing our relationship with God and bringing us to, to the Father. Not only does he get rid of what we've done that we shouldn't have, but he actually credits us with a track record that we could never have achieved on our own. So, so here's the thing. God, in the, in the portrait that's painted of him in the Bible and his word to us, is so far above us, so far removed from us in our transitory and weakened state that we just don't deserve a relationship with him. Not really. We, we, we don't, uh, he doesn't owe us that. Any more than you know, Billy Graham owes me, an inexperienced nobody preacher, access to him, right? Billy Graham doesn't owe me that. He's given that to no telling how many other preachers. And there are countless people like me who would want to pick his brain and just don't have the access because we don't, I don't have a track record that has earned it, right? Similarly, God is, God is not obligated to give any of us access to the life-giving relationship that we want and need from him. We haven't earned it. It's not just that we have broken it. It's that we have not done the good things necessary to earn it. I think the, the, the beauty in this passage goes further than Jesus erasing our guilt. It is also him overcoming the fact that we are not who we should be to warrant a relationship with God. He overcomes our inadequacy. I think that's what's meant in verses 25 and 26, where we're told Jesus is able to save completely all who draw near to God through him, that he lives always to intercede for us. And then we're told the reason that he lives to intercede for us, the reason that this is working, this whole system, is that he is perfect, he's holy, and he's unstained, and he's innocent, and he, he is exalted far beyond all sin. He, is, he has a track record that makes him credible with God, and, and therefore, I guess, I guess here's the bottom line, Jesus has earned his spot at the right hand of the Father as a priest forever. His permanence as a priest is proof that he has earned it. And that's the difference between these old priests who got their jobs because of what family they were from. That was a point that was made last week um, when Bill Hearman was preaching from, from the earlier section of this chapter. Th those priests, they were born into it. They were Levites. It mattered who your father was. Jesus' priesthood is not like that. No, his, his, his is not born. He's not, not one you're born into, and therefore it's not one that's cyclical. It's one that's permanent because he has earned it once and for all. Now, if this is a, a bit abstract for you, let me, try to, let me try to bring this down a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm going to do it through the world that I know. I think that this analogy is, is probably useful in just about every sphere, professional sphere, but 
uh, my only professional experience outside of you know working for this church was in the academic world. So I'm going to use I'm going to use a, an image that's familiar to me, and hopefully you can transpose it as necessary for your world. So in, in the academic world, we go to conferences. It's kind of what we do. We have our little guilds, and we go and present papers and posters and things like that. And at these conferences, you see people that whose books you've read, right? People who who have shaped your work, like your goals have been set in part because you encountered what they wrote way back when, and, and you said, yeah, I want to do that. But the problem is, is that you're surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of other graduate students who have also read their work and also would love to have them know who you are. You ever been at a conference like that? I don't know what it is. I'm sure music, the music world has its has, has similar things, like songwriters that just tower above everybody else or that you just wish you could rub shoulders with. In business, I know this happens. I know this happens at Chamber of Commerce meetings and what have you. Somebody that, that you would love to have for you in your corner, but that you know you're nothing compared to them. You are no one that that person should spend time on or take seriously. You don't have the track record. That's an, that's an intimidating situation. You don't want to be that guy, right? That guy who like buzzes around like a little gnat around these, around these figures who are, who are busy and have their own friends that they want to talk to. And But what if, what if your advisor is a friend of theirs? What if your advisor, who is worth their time, takes you with them, introduces you to that person, says, I want you to consider this person like you consider me. They're with me, right? All the stuff I've done that you respect, treat them as if they had done it. That doesn't change your worthiness at all. Your track record stays what it is. But now you've got a connection, a connection that can be life-giving, that can be life-shaping. Because in essence, your advisor, or transpose this however you want to, has transferred their credibility to you. Their track record becomes yours, and that makes you worthy of this life-giving relationship. That is the significance of having an eternal priest who's eternal, because they earned it. Eternal, because he's perfectly unstained, set apart from sin, worthy of the presence of our holy God. And that person lives to intercede for you. Do you get that? He lives for a purpose. And his whole purpose is to intercede for you. And ultimately, the, the, the analogy breaks down at one level because we all know who've, had, who've been in a similar situation in whatever field, we all know that there is, there is definitely, even the best of advisors or benefactors or whoever are still ultimately, to some extent, more focused on their own work than on yours. There is a limit to, the, to their willingness to, 
stand for you with people that you don't deserve to, to know and to have invest in you. But with Jesus, it's not that way. Do you get that in verse 25? He says, the perp- in other words, let me rephrase it for you. The purpose of his living forever is to intercede for you. So draw near to God. Now, I want to make one final point quickly. This one, I believe, is, is the most indirect of the three points as, as it relates to the passage we're considering this morning. I think it's in here, but I think it's also implied by everything else that's been said about how Jesus is a priest for us. And I think that this one is the most practical for us on a day-to-day basis. Like what we've talked about so far, Jesus erasing guilt, Jesus transferring his credibility to us so that we can draw near to God, so that we're worthy of that. Those things are sort of once for all. I mean, they definitely have practical ongoing effects for us. They, they, they help us to be willing to and, and, and boldly come into God's presence. But this third point, I think, is, is even more ongoing. It's, it goes to what Jesus is doing for us as our priest as he intercedes for us. His sacrifice has been made. It's not going to be made again. It's once for all. But, but what Jesus is doing now as our priest and what he lives always, we're told, to do, I think, is to represent our interests before God. And here's the way I'm putting it. A, a permanent priest is one who can perfectly supplement our prayers if a priest is meant as a go-between, like we've been saying, as, or maybe a better image even is, is a mediator who brings two parties together, who represents one party to the other party so that they can, they can get together, then there's a beautiful truth inside the fact that our priest is perfect and that he's permanent. In short, we've been told a couple things so far about how Jesus serves us as a priest. One of those things came up back in chapter 4. We were told there that Jesus became like us. He lived where we live. He lived through the kinds of things that we live through. So he understands us as deeply as anyone could. He understands us better than we even understand ourselves. And so now, because he gets us so fully, he is able to represent us to God. A high priest who can sympathize with us, who can tell God what we need. That's the image we got from chapter 4. And now... We get the image of him doing this forever, an emphasis on his eternality. And last, last time I was here, two weeks ago, the analogy I used for how beautiful this is is, is sort of customer service. We've all been through, I'll make it even more personal, a couple weeks ago, or maybe a month, maybe more like a month ago, I had this horrible customer service experience with my, my cable company. I should name them just for all posterity's sake, and this could go out on the podcast, but I'm not going to do it anyway. It was awful. It was awful. And what made it awful was that I just kept getting handed off. I, mean, I, I was on the phone for like an hour at one time, and it, it led nowhere. Then I tried the online chat thing. That never works. I don't know why I wasted two hours on that, but it, it didn't work. And then I called again maybe two more times, and I kept getting somebody different every time. And, and the, the people I'm working with, they held my future with this company in their hands, in a sense. If they don't represent me on this issue to this company that, that affects my quality of life, then, then I'm in trouble, right? They, they, they are going to decide how this thing goes down. 
And every time I call, I get somebody different. So they have no history with me. They don't understand where I'm coming from. They have not been explained, have, have not had it explained to them what every, all, the, all the stuff that has gone into this particular crisis. And, and so it's, it's like starting from scratch. And I drew an analogy from that experience to what the priesthood must have been like to an extent, because every 20 years, these priests are cycling out. They're dying or they're getting too old to serve. And, and there's no track record among those who represent the people to God and, and the people who need to be represented. But if we have a permanent priest who has lived where we are and therefore knows us backwards and forwards, he perfectly gets what we need and he lives forever and he's never going to stop interceding for us, then that means we have, we have a track record with him that he knows he knows it perfectly, and he always knows it, and he's always representing it. And that means that he, in a way that no one else ever could be, is in a position to represent us before God, to intercede for us, and to ask God to give us exactly what we need. And the beauty in this passage is that he lives. The purpose of his life is to do that. He puts his perfect credibility with God and his perfect knowledge of us to use as he intercedes for us. He, I like to think of him as interpreting our feeble and distracted prayers that are just so small-minded and so broken in what they articulate. He gets what we're going for. He even knows things we don't know to ask, and he adds his voice to ours. Let me give you a couple of, of, of examples I think help us to connect with this. It's beautiful when you think about it. Our son Walter is just now starting to try and talk. He's got some words down. He's trying really hard on a lot of other ones. And some of those are starting to emerge in certain patterns that we can understand. Now, if Walter wanted to have a conversation with one of you guys, you're not going to have a clue what he's saying. But Lindsay and I are articulate to an extent. And if we represent him to you in his broken words, in his really well-meaning and earnest language that just isn't distinguishable and, and that really isn't well enough form to be able to, to, to say what he wants. If we represent him to you from our perfect knowledge of him, as perfect as a parent could have, and our knowledge of you and what you need to hear to get his message, then his message can come through. Let me give you another one. This one I think is even better formed. Both of these are limited, but they help. Um, I don't remember what this commercial was advertising. Um, probably something really lame and cheesy. I don't know. But the, there's an image in this commercial that is actually beautiful when you think about Jesus and how he helps us. There's this commercial where uh, it's, it's a concert hall, and there's a big concert piano up on the stage, and there's this little kid that gets up there who's apparently taken piano lessons for the first time and has just learned to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, something like that. And so somehow he sneaks away from his parents and he's up there in front of this everybody, this huge concert, and he's pounding it out, one note by, note by note on his little fingers. And then the concert pianist sneaks up behind him and sits down next to him on the bench, wraps his arms around him, and starts to play this amazing, beautiful variation on the theme. You know, the theme is simple, and it's hammered out in its own little way, but it's transformed when this concert pianist who knows what he's doing and who is putting all of himself into it begins to play this amazing music. I like to think that that is what this promise is holding out to us. 
when we think about our feeble prayers and of how Jesus comes and wraps himself around them and represents them to God with his perfect knowledge of us and his perfect credibility with God, it becomes something other than what it would have been. And isn't that an encouragement? Because we all know how weak our prayer lives are. Ultimately, our words are feeble and inarticulate, but his aren't. Our hearts are untrue, and the best of our motives are mixed with pride and self-sufficiency. But his heart is pure, unstained. Our records don't deserve God's favor when we pray any more than a traitor has a right to ask for government benefits. But Jesus' track record is perfect. He has been crowned with glory and honor. And he has been given all of the earth as his inheritance. And now he gives it to us. Our minds are so prone to distraction. But his mind is precisely focused with laser-like precision on the purpose for which he lives. And it's this. He lives to intercede for you. Do you draw near to God as if your priest was permanent and perfect? All of us have problems. Let's, I mean, let's be honest. We've got big problems. We've got burdens that we're carrying. Even this morning, I know that you guys came in here feeling weighed down by something. The psalmist David promises in one of my favorite psalms, in Psalm 16, that God is our portion, that he's our cup, that in his presence there is fullness of joy, that there is no good apart from him. And David wrote those words when he was serving in a tabernacle system that kept him in the outer courts of a physical space that was designed only as a shadow of what is now true and real this moment because of Jesus. If we bring our problems, however big they are, to him, if we draw near to God through our priest who's permanent and perfect, then burdens fall off. They don't go away. They get carryable. What is it that holds us back? I mean, all of us wish our prayer life was better than it was, don't we? What is it that keeps us from drawing near to God to receive from his presence the fullness of joy that's promised us there? Is it that we are weighed down by guilt? That you don't think you're worthy? Is it because you don't think that Jesus is a good enough priest to have perfectly taken care of the problem of your guilt? Is it your own inadequacy? As if you're not worthy to enter God's presence? You know what? It's true in one sense. But in another sense that matters far more, it's not true. You are holy and unstained and separated from sinners and in Jesus Christ exalted above the heavens. Why would you hold back? Is it because you're not experienced and you feel like you don't know how to pray? Is it because you're praying as if Jesus weren't praying with you. As if he weren't taking your words and transforming them into something else, something greater. What's holding you back? 
Don't you see? We have a perfect high priest who lives forever, not limited by the things that have held back every priest before him, and that therefore, consequently, because we have a priest who can save us completely, we should draw near to God without fear. Let's do it together now. Father, we don't deserve the right to speak to you. And even as we speak to you now, we know we do so with hearts that are mixed in motive and minds that aren't fully there and engaged. Oh, but we bring these prayers to you through Jesus. And we trust that he is powerful to transform them. When you look at us, dear Father, would you please see Jesus? When you hear us, would you hear the voice of your beloved Son who gave himself so that we could be free? And dear Jesus, we don't even know what we need. But we know we cannot live alone. So would you intercede for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.